Good morning. How does everybody feel today? A couple of words about um, where we've been and where we're going. Uh, as you, if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, this summer we are spending time in the book of James. And it's really cool, I think, by the way. Like, it's, it's neat to see, like, um, like, we're in meetings or we're in house churches and all kinds of things, and people keep bringing up, um, you know, verses from James or ideas that they've uh, heard about from James. I could tell that, like, the, the book is really working in our congregation. Amen. I think that that's like a really powerful thing. It's, it's great. I hope we can continue that spirit. Um, so I uh, just wanted to say um, uh, thank you to Kendall and Mark, who did a fantastic job a few weeks ago talking to us about, about words. Um, like I, I thought about it. I told him, I said, you know, when um, we were kind of planning the series and we were putting things together, um, we were trying to think, you know, what kind of things could we, could we bring up at certain times? And I had this idea like, oh, well, what if like a married couple talked about um, words and about the power that words have in our lives and the powers that, uh, that words can do to, to either build up or to break down? What if, a, what if a married couple got up and talked to us about that? And that was exactly what I had in mind when, when Kendall and Mark come up here. And then the, the week after that, B.J. Hall came. And just I was like, oh, what, what if we could get like one of the wisest people that I know? To, to talk to us about wisdom. And she did an incredible job. So if you haven't heard them, please go online and get them. They're fantastic. And uh, next week, kind of talk about where we're going. Next week, Rick Faint is going to talk us about the idea of planning and about whether or not a Christian can plan and how that looks. Um, and you're going to hear from, from Jason and me one more time, both Jason and I, before um, we close our time in James and the summertime is over. So... The text has been working in our congregation, and I hope that this one today, our verses for today, are no exception. So if you please would, please turn with me to James chapter 4. I'm actually going to read the message's translation here. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from. Do you think that they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have, and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You, you wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And Why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. And you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose that, that God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. But God gives grace to the willing humble. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no 
to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God. And he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom. Cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll ever get on your feet. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? It's kind of one of those texts that punches you in the gut, isn't it? And also, it struck me that like the, he changes like the, the tense. He's using these U's. It's very convicting. A few years ago, I began to lament the fact that um, a few of the friends of mine that were kind of close friends of mine in my high school years um, had moved to different states. I had one friend in Florida and one in Pennsylvania and even one in Oregon. So I knew it wasn't healthy to like dwell in the past. But there was something inside of me um, that encouraged me just to not cut ties with these guys that had played such a, an important role earlier in my life. So I was, we were emailing back and forth, and, and I asked them, I said, you know, if there were, is there any ways, any ideas that they had, that, you know, ways that we could connect? Maybe we could, I don't know, play a video game or together online or something, I don't know, and meet up for like some, or maybe like meet up for like a vacation or something somewhere, some point. And eventually we settled on the idea that we could all read the same book and, uh, every month, and then we'd talk about it over email. And, and I thought, like, all right, same book. Like, maybe we'll read, like, the classics, or, or maybe uh, we'll get into, like, modern-day politics or, you know, talk about the state of the world and get different people's points of view. You know, it, maybe, maybe we could even read, like, some deep theology or something, and, um, you know, something that was really going to purify my inner life. Um, but my friend, my friend Bill, uh, who, who thought he was being funny, <laughs> um, he, he chose the first book, the first selection, which was, he sends out an email, goes, first book, picture, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> Have you heard of this? Has anybody read it? No? Nobody's read it. All right. So the idea, this, this, this guy, Seth Graham Smith, uh, he took the 19, or 1813 Jane Austen novel, um, and he removes like 20% of it, and he replaces that 20% with like zombie mayhem. Um, the weird thing about it is that like seriously, like 80%, like a huge chunk of this book is Jane Austen's original text. Same characters, same settings, but, but you know, he has to change like like, certain things here and there. For example, like, the Bennett sisters are now, like, trained ninja assassins. <laughs> and, and, they, and they devote their lives to, like, fighting the undead. But it, it, it's all done with this, like, Jane Austen-style language. You know, it was very proper. You know, it was fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> because the truth is that, you know, I never, ever 
would have read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have even seen the movie. You know, but seeing as there were like, you know, zombies and ninjas in it, I got into it. I gave it a chance. Um, and I got to say, I really ended up getting into the story. As far as I could tell, Jane Austen never actually speaks directly about the topics of pride and prejudice, like directly. Instead, what she does is she crafts this story using um, these incredibly wealthy characters that have an enormous amount of time on their hands. Uh, the way the characters interact with each other and speak to each other is absolutely absurd. And I'm not even talking about the zombie parts. Everything from the way, like, Mr. Darcy glances at Elizabeth from across the room, and, and there's unspoken things, and, and a smile in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and which guests were, guests were invited to tea, and which ones weren't. You read this thing, and you want to scream at the characters, just, just talk to each other. You like him, he likes you. If you just talk to each other for five minutes, the book would be like three pages long. It's like Jane Austen's title at the top of every page. These, these sins of pride and prejudice. They're like I, I like, I had this image in my head as I'm reading that. It's like these two giant boulders that all these characters are carrying around that are keeping them, keeping them from experiencing love and joy and hope. And after you finish with that, you're like, well... A little zombie absurdity kind of fits rather nicely. <laughs> Random House says the words like, uh, says that words like pride, conceit, self-esteem, and vanity imply an unduly favorable idea on one's own appearance, advantages, achievements, etc., and often apply to offensive characteristics. Pride is a lofty and often arrogant assumption of superiority in some respect. Pride devours us, doesn't it? It destroys communities like ours. It eats away at marriages. It keeps us from learning from each other, living with each other, knowing each other. It's such a volatile evil that keeps us from really loving each other. And even more so because it keeps us... Um, oh, I didn't say that already. Jesus' uh, great commandment tells us that all of the law and the prophets hang on the direction that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. See, love lived out in its proper place. God occupying the place in our lives which only He is worthy of. We are to take that love directed at the Father, receive His love in return, and then respond with honest, raw love towards our fellow man. That, that is easier said than done in the face of selfish ambition and pride. Paul tells us in Philippians, tells the Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but, but in lowliness of mind, let each other let, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice that neither Jesus nor Paul is advocating that we shouldn't love ourselves. I don't think that taking time for yourselves and, and bringing order to your life is prideful. If you're drained, 
physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, if you're drained of that energy, you aren't any good to anybody. So in that sense, the best way we can love our neighbor is to love ourselves. But, but Paul goes beyond that and asks us to esteem others better than ourselves. He uses the phrase, with lowliness of mind or with meekness of mind. The message translates it, put yourselves aside and help others get ahead. The NIV simply uses the phrase, with humility. Humility is the key. As James reminds us, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. There is therefore this intimate relationship between God putting us in our place and that place being exactly where we need to be to get past the wars and the fights that exist among us and truly love our neighbors. Jesus tells us that these appalling wars and quarrels come from our desire to have it our way and not trust God. My original title for the sermon was Pride and Prejudice, but but the more I prayed on it, the more God lay on my heart to consider what sort of wars and quarrels Christians have today. And then he whispered a word in my ear evangelism. I was listening to a talk show on the radio this couple of days ago, and a a Christian called in. I forget what they were talking about, but the first thing that this guy said was, well, I'm a Christian, but it's not like I think everybody should be. And I turned on the radio immediately, and I'm like, wow, is that where we are? I'm a Christian, but it's not like not like I think everybody should be. Not, I mean, this might work for me, but it's not, I don't think it's actually going to solve anybody else's problems. Frankly, I wouldn't want to follow Jesus if it wasn't good news for everybody. And if it really is good news at all, is it really good news at all if it's only a life philosophy or a religious system that may be good for a few people that are raised in the, that sort of culture? No. No, I believe that the gospel, the gospel is way bigger than that. I believe it's about God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. It's about God putting the world to right and us along with it, washing our sin away and allowing us to take part in his new creation. Friends, we have good news to proclaim to the world And here's the trick. We cannot do it without humility. We can't do it with these boulders of pride and prejudice and envy and conceit and wars and quarreling weighing us down. We can't do it without seeing that all fall short of the glory of God and that there is no one who is too far gone my son, James, is uh, kind of graduating to, like, the next level of um, entertainment. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not all baby shows anymore. You know, now it's, he's kind of starting to notice, like, um, uh, these things called superheroes. And 
he's like, you can kind of see like the wheels turning in his head. Like, oh, these, these guys are strong. And oh, they're, they're, oh, they're powerful. And they're, oh, they're very smart. This, this is incredible. I want to be one. <laughs> and it's interesting how like the world may respect that kind of strength and power, or, and wisdom, like, like supers have. James calls them supers. But humility, humility is like the Christian's superpower. It's the thing that will radically reach the nations. It's the thing that will help us love like nothing else will. It will fuel the revo- revolution. Amy said to me the other day when we were talking about that, she's like, how upside down is that? So I wanted to think about that, the, the need for humility, um, before we study, uh, before we take communion together. And to do that, I want to sing you a song. Now this song, at first glance, is not going to be something that you might think of as, sorry, it's not a worship song. It's a song that was written in the mid-60s by a, not a British band, actually Mary Barr just told me they were Australian, right? It paints a picture of these two men having a conversation deep inside of a mind that has collapsed. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I'd like you all to see. It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. Have you seen Mr. Jones, do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide. Mr. Jones, I keep straining my ears to hear a sound. Maybe someone is digging underground Or have they given up and all gone home to bed Thinking those that once existed must be dead Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I'd like you all to see. It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. 
Have you seen my wife, Mr. Joe? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. So I heard that years ago. I remember thinking to myself the first time I heard it, like, there's something there. I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but there was something that was a deep truth in that kind of a conversation. We're, we're going to take communion in a few minutes, but I want us to meditate on this song first. It's a heavy image if you let it work on you. The song paints a picture of these two men deep inside of a mine shaft that's collapsed. Maybe when it happened at first, I, I don't know anything about mining, but maybe they, maybe they didn't act like it was a big deal. Well, surely somebody saw it, you know, or at least heard the rocks crumble, right? And they'd be along eventually to dig them out. Maybe at first things were rather optimistic, maybe irresponsibly so. Hours pass, and then comes the fear and then comes the silence. I don't, I don't know if they're coming. I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this mine alive. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my family again. And then somebody, somebody breaks the silence. In the event of something happening to me... I, there's something I'd like you all to see. It's just a photograph of my wife. See, this is my proof that there's life in this world. There's life on the outside. I can feel it. And I think we experience this all the time. As we prepare our hearts for communion, my question to you is, who is in the mine? Who have you given up on? Have you gone home and held on to those things that made you feel alive, really alive, when all the while there were friends, family, co-workers, people that you've given up for dead. It may be that they are irresponsibly optimistic. It may be that we are irresponsibly optimistic, thinking that we, or anyone else for that matter, doesn't really need Jesus to get us out of this mind. Well, I'm a Christian, but it's not like I think everybody should be. No. No, James closes his letter with these words. He says, my dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back, and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. This will take strength. It will take words that point the world back to God. It will take wisdom that is pure and peaceable and gentle. It will take a turning away from pride and prejudice and a turning towards the type of humility that Jesus modeled for us. Paul continues those words in Philippians. He says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus taught. 
of himself, thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think of so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human, and it was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. William Law says that you can have no greater sign of a confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. 